0: I believe that what we do as women in the privacy of our own minds is the single greatest determinant of our lives. I'm Emma Title and you are listening to the Women Today podcast, where we are unpacking and investigating the new female psychology. I am a psychotherapist, coach, and teacher who is passionate about women's internal and external freedoms. You are in the right place if you want to hear in-depth stories about women's lives On this show, we dig deep into the minds and hearts of women to understand what it really takes to heal, to grow, and to experience psychological freedom so that we can create lives of authenticity, fulfillment, and contribution. This is a place to receive nourishment, inspiration, and guidance as we continue to show up for the complexity and nuance of our lives as women. I'm so glad that you're here, and let's get started with today's episode. Hi, and welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the podcast. We have a really special and rare opportunity today, which is that I'm sharing a conversation I had with Dr. Jean Shinoda Bolin. Jean is a psychiatrist, a Jungian analyst, and an internationally known author and speaker. When I was first thinking about this podcast and the people I wanted to interview, Dr. Jean was at the top of my list of folks that I would be totally beside myself if I got to have a conversation with. But quite honestly, I thought that I would not have my invitation accepted. So when I reached out to her and she agreed, I was really excited and also nervous because Jean is a woman who has greatly impacted my career as a psychotherapist and also my life as a woman. She has written over 13 books, which is incredible, and some of which are on archetypal psychology. You'll hear us specifically talk about goddesses in every woman, which is a book that has really helped me along my journey and has also helped me to support hundreds of women over the course of my career. Dr. Jean is a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology a former clinical professor of psychiatry at Langley Porter Psychiatric Institute, University of California Medical Center, and a past board member of the MISS Foundation for Women, the International Transpersonal Association, and the C.G. Young Institute of San Francisco. She lives in Mill Valley, California, where she is still in private practice working with people as an analyst. And she is an NGO permanent representative to the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women from the Women's World Summit Foundation. She also represents Pathways to Peace, The Millionth Circle, Earth Child Institute, Women's Perspective, and the International Public Policy Institute. She is in three acclaimed documentaries, the Academy Award-winning anti-nuclear proliferation film, Women for America, for the World, the Canadian Film Board's Goddesses, Remembered, and FEM, Women Healing the World. Dr. Jean is in her 80s, and she is a wealth of information, wisdom, depth, and knowledge. She is an activist. She is an environmentalist. In this interview, we go into so many different things, from archetypal psychology to the women's movement of the 1970s. We talk about support from the invisible realms, environmentalism, how to understand your purpose and unique assignment as a woman. We talk about so many things. My experience is that this conversation and interview is much more like a transmission than anything else. It's very nonlinear. And I highly encourage you to listen to this one in a space of receptivity because there are so many little gems and nuggets and treasures that come out sort of unexpectedly throughout the conversation. And Dr. Jean is someone who we can all learn a tremendous amount from. And it was really powerful for me to get to receive her wisdom. And I hope that it is meaningful for you as well. Hi, and welcome, Jean, to our show here, the Women Today podcast.
1: I'm so honored to have you as our guest. It's a pleasure to be with you and in this virtual space that we now are able to be in, and it feels like we're in the same room, practically. <laughs> it's really nice. And thank you for
0: ringing that bell just before we began recording, Jean, hit her singing bowl a few times and that was the exact thing I needed to just ground and center a little bit for this
1: conversation so thank you oh you're very welcome I I find that it resonates at the level of the heart and it connects people that are talking to one another at that level and that's a fine place to talk from and not the head yes I
0: felt that (laughs) so thank you (laughs) And amen to speaking from the heart and connecting from that place. So I have you here on the show today because you were one of the first people that came to mind with whom I wanted to speak about really helping us to frame where we are at in women's psychology today and understanding the landscape a little bit in terms of where we've been and also where we're headed together. And I know that you are a psychiatrist as well as a Jungian analyst and that you work a lot with something called archetypal psychology. And I'm wondering if today you can start out just by explaining to the listeners a little bit about what archetypal psychology is and how it can be incredibly useful for women on our journeys of personal growth and development.
1: I'd like to first remind everyone who's listening that we are in a liminal space. We are in the coronavirus pandemic. I am speaking to you from California, where I am sheltered in place. And there is the busyness of usual life is not happening for most of us. We have time to reflect, time in which we, uh, can have dreams and wake up from them and have time actually to to give it, them some thought maybe even write them down and not bolt out the door and go and you know rush out to where we're expected and that kind of thing so that's the first thing is that we are in a liminal space and this is a wonderful word word to explain when we are in between so whenever you are considering what should I do next, or shall I shift something, you're in between. You're no longer just automatically who you used to be, and you're, you're not sure what's going to come next. And this is where the archetypes come in, because this is a, the idea of there being patterns that are in us from the time we come into the world. They don't have names, but they are definite human patterns and they reflect personality and drive and and the qualities that are recognizable when you start learning about archetypes and they're writing that well Carl Jung's writing is multi-volume it's multi-intellectual often and so what i did was one i really got that his is a psychology that also includes a spiritual center and also Allows for the mystical and the and the synchronistic, the the kind of things that just seem to happen that are meaningful, but no, not cause and effect. So, I gravitate towards the Jungian world in a Freudian psychoanalytic psychotherapy minded uh, residency in, in in San Francisco. Okay, so what is an archetype really? It's like a a template, for example, the archetype you are speaking and the audience that we are speaking to are, are primarily women who are interested in women's psychology, I gather, and who have an affinity to learn from each other, all right? The pattern is the archetype of Artemis, the sister archetype, the archetype of the woman whose psychology is the capacity to be focused, for example. Not all of us focus. There are the goddesses, the patterns that are much more diffuse, that are always attending to more than naturally to the ambience. So that's Persephone, for example. That's the the archetypes that have to do with the mother. The archetype Persephone is is like the daughter, but she's she is an introvert who is attending to and taking in, it doesn't have a clear focus. Well, Artemis is the goddess of the wilderness. Her symbol is the bow and arrow, and, the, and she's the goddess of the moon. So what do you have there? When you have an inherent mysticism, moonlight. When you see things by moonlight, there's a oneness. She likes the wilderness. Another goddess, Athena, likes the city. They look alike on the surface in that they both are women who can accomplish things. But Artemis goes after the target of her own choosing. She doesn't, she doesn't figure out how to become successful in the patriarchal world as Athena did. Artemis is the goddess or the archetype of the women's movement. So if you feel a sense of sisterhood, if you have a sense that you can focus on something that matters to you and that you'll persist in it, and that one of the things you need to learn is to start attending to others as to how you affect others. Because if you stay focused on something, you're sort of tuning out what's going on and the feelings of people around you. And so that's like the, the downside. By the way, all the archetypes are somewhat present in all of us. It's just mm-hmm. I'm talking about if your leading archetype is Artemis, then you're a natural feminist. -hmm. And lots of women are not natural feminists. Do not have a sense of sisterhood. So an archetype is a pattern, and then you fill it out with your individuality. About like like uh, Gloria Steinem is an Artemis, except she has no particular affinity for nature in the wilderness because she's always been a big city girl. (laughs) But the qualities of sisterhood are a focus. And things like that uh, we very much have in common. So you don't fulfill all of the patterns of an archetype because you have the other archetypes also as part of you. And you also have a masculine part. One of the things I liked about Jung is it assumed that there was a natural masculine and feminine in all of us. Yes. So...
0: If a woman is wanting to understand herself more deeply, by the way, I I strongly recommend Jean's books. She has one, Goddesses in Every Woman. And that book really changed my life actually because through reading about your explanation, I was able to come to know myself differently and to trust the patterns that were showing up in me differently. So my question to you is, it sounds like does each woman have like a primary or dominant archetype that's usually demonstrating itself through her life or are there multiples? Like how would a woman go about understanding herself from this perspective?
1: Well, I would say that you can kind of tell something about the, the basic pattern in a baby girl who grows in the first first year or two of life. You, you see the basic, whether you you see you see her um in her crib you know is she active and is she trying to crawl up and over and out of this <laughs> <laughs> that's my daughter right now <laughs> <laughs> or is she just kind of placidly quite comfortable you know is is there and does does she make a lot of noise to get attention or you know they they're they they're, they're basic qualities and then as then as you learn about architects you find out how certain of, of these fit like like in, in uh, when the little girl is a bit older, does she naturally want to play with dolls or does she not want anything to do with dolls? Does she like dogs better, for example? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the woman who, who grows into a, a naturally maternal person who looks after and wants to help others to grow and to, I mean, that, that is the archetype of the mother or demeter who was the mother of Persephone, and Persephone was this, this, the, the story of the, the daughter who was abducted into the underworld. The sense of who you might feel closest to has a lot to do with story, because, you know, the, the writers of, of fiction will say that there are only so many basic patterns if you're describing a woman protagonist. And they fit within, it's a variation of the the kind of the inherent ones. And I named um, seven of them as pretty basic and goddesses in every woman. And sometimes you have more than one that's strong, but often you start out with one that is naturally strong and can last all your life, but you have to keep evolving anyway because you can't just stay that young version of that archetype. Uh, and life comes along and you adapt. And as you adapt, it invites out or it constellates uh, the archetypes that are also there, but maybe haven't been given a chance. Now, one of the things that happens in, in people who go into psychotherapy often is that their family expected them as a girl to, to be a girl the way if they expected girls to be.
0: Mm-hmm. And they
1: were made to feel ashamed if they would prefer to climb a tree than, than play tea with, with the dolls or something like that. So the, the more the family has some expectation that you should be this kind of a girl and you're being bad or you're embarrassing us or you're, you know, you're just, it's not right that you are more interested in whatever you're interested in and not what we are interested in having you interested in. And so what, what and then if you started started to feel angry, And protest, and you were punished for it, and you had enough sense to know that you'd better stuff that, and feel bad about it too. Because anybody that makes you feel ashamed of just something that comes up, you have to reclaim it later when you when you have a the capacity to know that you have your own choice of what you're going to do, or things like that. And it has to do with the hormones in your body as well because you can be an, an Artemis and out in the world or an Athena, you know, doing strategy in the world and, and all, and then you could get pregnant and you are flooded with progesterone and estrogens and you're, you're, you're carrying, you know, you're no longer in the body that you trusted was so competent because you're ungainly and, you know, you're pregnant and you're getting bigger. And, And then the question is, when the baby comes, will it evoke in you the mother archetype? And it is so much better for the mother and the baby if that happens. But it doesn't happen to every woman. You can be biologically a mother and the maternal archetype just doesn't seem to be there. And and maybe you'll try really hard to you know, to, to be what a mother is supposed to do, but but it isn't a natural instinct that comes from the archetypal level. And both the mother and the child, you know, feel something's kind of amiss, really, because there's something just instinctual if you come from that particular archetype.
0: That's so powerful to hear about the hormonal interplay with the archetype. And that's Wow. And I've watched myself and I've also watched so many other women go through the transformation of motherhood, and it does look different for all of us.
1: Yeah, it does. Yeah. We also have a choice of, well, maybe the patriarchy in its conservatism does not want us to have a choice of birth control, does not want us to to be able to decide whether we are going to spend our lives uh, pursuing some calling we have that doesn't have to be to be a mother. Yeah. Because if you have a calling, you know, if you have a calling to be a mother, people don't think about it, but the calling to be a mother means that whoever comes out of you, you are committed to that project, that baby, for say at least the next 20 years. Yeah. Now, if you have a calling to be like a classical pianist or a member of a violinist in an orchestra or something like that, you have a similar length of commitment if you are going to achieve what it is in you that wants to manifest. And so it may take or I wanted to be a doctor." Well, to be a doctor. <laughs> the schooling the schooling keeps on, you know there's there's pre-med four years, there's there's residency another four years, there's an internship, another year, and then if it happens to be psychiatry, another three years. What's a very long commitment? And it's fine if this is your own true choice to be on this path. But if you are made to live a life that is not from inside out, as so many women are expected to do that, if you don't have a choice of birth control, if you can't leave a marriage, if you're not supposed to go to school because in your family, girls don't go to school. What do you do if your archetype is like Athena and you have a fine mind that needs, wants to be, wants to learn, wants to train? And, you know, one of the things, who you are depends on what it is that you naturally love. In a a sense, what happens is that you lose track of time doing it. So that's one of the things I would suggest to people. That's that's such a beautiful
0: little reminder or pointer that you're kind of describing the flow state. Like if you, if you just naturally love and lose track of time, that's the indicator that that's the thing you want to be doing and spending your time doing. Right. And
1: during during this um, pandemic, you actually have much more choice if you can do it while you're sheltered in place. That is.
0: Yes. Yes. So I love everything you're speaking to. And I'm wondering so you and I, we both live in the United States. Some women listening to this will live in other countries, but we're in 2020 and we obviously still have so much work to do in terms of gender equality, but we're in a much better situation than we were historically in the United States in many ways. And so I'm wondering what, if anything, have you seen change in, in your years working in clinical practice with women? Like what, looks different in women's minds today and what hasn't changed that much over the course of your career?
1: Since my career has been a rather long one, it sort of would be like a history review. Okay, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But um, one of the things, just very recent history, like from 2018 or 2016, but definitely from 2018 to now, the number of women who are in the House of Representatives, the, the what we are seeing on television during this pandemic—so many women governors, mm-hmm. women senators, women members of the House. This is a new phenomenon, mm-hmm. and the the phenomenon of just in, in a in a. A short realization of of when something is accomplished and becomes the new normal, we assume that this has always been this way. And I learned about new normal when I saw the movie that was about how women got the right to vote. Now I was fully into the women's movement of the late seventies. I realized that that uh, about how change happens when. I was grousing about it. I didn't have anybody that I really wanted to vote for. And then I saw the movie and realized that we have uh, of the women who who from I think it was nineteen about seventy to nine eighteen seventy to, to nineteen nineteen really struggled to get us the right to vote. Yeah. And by the time I came along as soon as I got to be twenty one, I could vote. And the thought was, well, haven't women always voted? You took it for granted. And then I began, and that was an object lesson for me to learn, that once something changes and it becomes a new norm, whoever grows up within this new norm assumes that that's what is. So all the girls that are watching TV and seeing women senators, we don't see, we haven't seen a woman president yet, but all but, you know, but we're seeing there are women presidents in other countries, there are women prime ministers in other countries. it is clear if you're a girl and you're looking at television, that you could be any one of those, because you have to have often have to have role models to see that you know, if she could do that, I could do that too. And so I've lived through the the women's movement in the late sixties and seventies. The, the protests against the Vietnam War, this, the various things like that. And I got involved in being an active member of the, the American Psychiatric Association with that same thing in mind. I was up in a row where the national conference was coming to San Francisco and I was the only high-level officer I was a chair of the Council on National Affairs. And there had been a referendum by men who objected to the Equal Rights Amendment and to the fact that on paper, the American Psychiatric Association supported the ERA. They had a referendum to repudiate that. This is appalling and, and that you would have. This is the organization of psychiatrists. Psychiatrists had more women patients than men patients. At that point, it was 89% of the the psychiatrists in the organization were men, and two-thirds of their patients were women, and you didn't think that it mattered that they were treated equal or not. So wow. this is when I contacted Gloria Steinem. I hadn't met her before, but she heeded the call to come and help us. Amazing. <laughs> well, it's like you asked me to be on your program. Yeah. It's very similar, you know. You you know you you have the energy for what you're doing, and your heart is in it. And somehow, if your imagination allows you to think large and you dare, you can manifest.
0: <laughs> I, that's so inspiring, and also, it really speaks to even the history of psychotherapy or psychiatry. That I mean, it's not that long ago that i mean that's something that's changed there's so many more women psychiatrists so many more women therapists coming into the field to support the women patients or
1: clients right right that's true and and also the options that we see as women and the choices we have are considerably greater than ever before yeah you now i like to think that that activism is finding your voice and speaking for values that really matter to you. But you also have to give some thought to: Is this the right time and right place to take a stand and to speak up, um, so that it's not an automatic: somebody pushed your button and blah. You're <laughs> you're in your, your activist mode. I think there's that that there's there's something to be said for being able to have a support group of women. And this is what started the the feminist movement back in the sixties and seventies was were consciousness raising groups where where women were talking to each other about what they were experiencing. And it appeared to be just women, uh, you know, women talk. They're just talking to each other. And out of this grassroots thing came though <laughs> the women's movement of the 70s. And and the 1970s was the decade of the women's movement. And all kinds of things were changed on paper and in reality. And there was this wave and then it got suppressed. And then by the 80s, there were women that were saying, well, I may want to be a doctor or a lawyer, but I'm not a feminist. Feminist became a dirty word. Mm-hmm. In fact, whenever women have had have grown in stature in, in, in ways that was offensive to the males in charge. Whatever they were aspiring to somehow got tarnished by the adjective, and you didn't want to dissociate yourself from, from it. So what helps if you have a support system of others. Basically, women who have enough Artemis in them that there's a sense of natural sisterhood. And this is where you can speak up about what you really have experienced and what you really aspire to. Mm -hmm. And if you can say it out loud and you have women you trust believing that, yes, you could do that. And have you thought about this or that or the other thing might come in as well? Then, you know, they they have your back when you then go and apply for this or you go to protest about that or you run for this or you run for that. You've got, you, you've got a core trusted group uh, with you. And I've taken the women's movement idea and essentially in the millionth circle and in moving toward the millionth circle and in a chapter uh, about the archetype of the circle in Urgent Message for Mother, the idea of circles with a sacred center. The bell, for example, was a sound that went from ordinary time into a deeper place, heart-connected place. And then we used to spend as a group more time in silence for meditation, visualization, prayer, you know, without, without a ritual of saying who anybody was praying to or if they were praying. It was just that there was a silence to, to meditate or visualize or pray or whatever it is that is you. It's not a theological pressure to do it in a certain way. but. But then you have an indiscipline support if you believe in such things. And I certainly do, whether it's the synchronistic things that happen or the sense that there is like a, a, an other side. And those folks, those people on the other side, may take an interest mm-hmm. energetically in us on this side. And whether you believe you have an invisible support or the visible support of a partner, if you have a partner who treats you and isn't equal. You know, this is one of the things, the archetype of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess who was the first of twins. And after she was born, she helped her mother with the, the most difficult delivery in mythological history. And what she did was help deliver, because, well, it had to do because... Her mother had a hex on her or some such thing. And she helped deliver because goddesses are, and gods are not like ordinary folks. So here she was just recently born when she helped midwife her brother Apollo into the world. Mm. And so she comes into the world with a sense of being equal to her brothers. And it, and often that is true these days. You see little girls who feel quite equal to the boys in the neighborhood or their, their brothers and things like that. And so the archetypal energies that say that you can do this when the generation ahead of you may say you shouldn't do that, or you can't do that, or you're just a girl. What you need is the support of the sisters Mm. and the invisible world, if you can tune into it. I feel like I'm getting a transmission
0: from you, Jean, (laughs) because... You're really highlighting two critical things and I'd be curious if there is any more that that you perceive, but that for women to feel fully empowered, the support of sisterhood and then the support of the invisible world or a spiritual dimension, whatever someone's language is for mm-hmm. it, that those are two core building blocks of a woman's sense of strength in the world. And in herself.
1: And and if she has a partner that is her husband lover, but at the brother level of equal and different power, you know, that patriarchal world is hierarchical. And if you are in an egalitarian relationship, it is not a patriarchal relationship, but you could be in a relationship with someone who's just the same age as you, et cetera, et cetera. But he is patriarchal and you are subject to, to that energies. I
0: love that. The equal but different power and mm-hmm. having that kind of a companion, just yeah. the egalitarian companion.
1: And there are more and more of that these days.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Is there anything, you know, because
0: I'm, I'm sort of voraciously studying, what does it take for women to become free in their own minds. And these components you've just spoken to feel critical. Are there any other core things that you would identify that help a woman to become free inside her own psyche?
1: Often uh, she needs, she needs to reconnect with what she has dismembered in a sense. There's remembering and dismember. I mean, there's the idea of dismemberment and you cut off an arm or something and you're, you've lost a piece of yourself. And then there's remembering and, and the work often in recovering the pieces of yourself. And this is what, where inner work comes. It doesn't always have to be in a therapeutic situation unless you get symptomatic and then you really could use some help. But there is this this, this thing about how whatever side of you was natural but wasn't welcomed in your family. And so you, you sort of never developed it or you, you even felt ashamed that you were interested in whatever that was because it was put down. Uh, the reclaiming and becoming, what I say, who you were meant to be. It's what archetypes did you come into the world with? What obstacles did you have to overcome within a family that was part of both support and put down, which is true of so many families. And then what, as you go into the world and as you grow into who you are as an adult, again, it goes back to something we talked about uh, earlier before we went on, before we got recorded. and that. That's the sense of, of what is it you do when you are totally absorbed in it that you lose track of time? What is the gift and the intention that makes you just love whatever it is? And with all kinds of good intentions, many families discouraged boys and girls, to do whatever that is because you can't make a living at it or, you know, that's what boys do or that's what girls do or something like that, when it's who you are and what you love and and, and in this liminal in-between time of the coronavirus, there is more time now if you will use this time to do that. What can you remember doing that really absorbs you? And then, as you start to stir that up, maybe you will start remembering your dream life, mm-hmm. and who shows up in your dreams, and what are you doing in the dreams and can you translate it i mean there's often a need to sort of it's sort of like understanding poetry or what the themes is in the literature thing that to work on a dream you is a language of metaphor so there's there's often a need to translate that just what happened in the dream and who was there to why is that person in your dream at all? Mm -hmm. You know, if you think, um, I'm thinking of someone who was remembering a dream of someone she hadn't thought about for, and even seen for about 20 years. But what did that person represent to her that shows up now during this liminal time when she could start to reconnect with what that person represented in her. I mean, this is, this is a time to grow into who you could become. And also a liminal time where the, the activism I've had uh, came to so the United Nations, came primarily through writing this little book called The Million Circle on women's circles with a spiritual center or sacred center. And how an organization that I didn't call into existence, but was made up of women who had, were at the UN and also involved with other things, who somehow got together and was inspired by the Man Circle book to form an organization. And so I get called by a woman I actually had not met before who described how they had gone to the Parliament of World Religions in Cape Town, and one of them had taken my newly published little book with them, and they, and they ended up discussing it in, in one of their, wow. their groups. And a woman who was connected with the book, Crossing to Avalon, the woman who invited me to go to Europe for the first time to connect with my spiritual sources. And I get this unusual letter in in a midlife transition that I was in. A call to adventure, really. (laughs) And I did check out a bit of who she was. But it was still just an unknown. And this started me on on a journey. And when she was at this Parliament of World Religions and and had dropped into that particular group meeting, and Eleanor Dedeker stepped into the meeting, and they had my little book, The Mayan Circle, with them. They ended up talking with each other and learning from each other. And then one of them, who happens to live in Marin County, calls me up and describes how all of this happened. And we are having an organiza- organizing meeting not far from where you live, up the road in Petaluma. And uh, we would like to invite you to come and we would like to use the name, the Million Circle. <laughs> and that's how that Million Circle, and, they, and three of them were involved with the United Nations. And it was why, it was because of that that a year later, I went with a group of them to the UN. And because the idea of the man's circle, which came from the story of the hundredth monkey, which is all about the idea that we are linked at the archetypal level, that mm. every species has its own collective unconscious, so to speak. Every single species, then, when a critical number of that species learns this new thing, Pretty soon, it's what that species now does. So it begins as a new thing, becomes like almost an instant. I mean, now this is what the species will do. So the idea of the men's circle is that when a critical number of women's circles form, that we will go into uh, from critical number into archetypal structure, into a form that is intention, which is intention with the hierarchy. There's circle and there's hierarchy. And when a critical number of women are in circles and 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 are used to being in conversations in which you face one another as equals and you listen to one another and you help each other to grow into who you could be, or you organize a circle for a particular reason, and you all work together on making it happen, it pretty soon becomes a form that becomes more and more natural. And what I see during this pandemic is Zoom circles where there are families who hardly talk to one another and the little people in the family never spoke up. They just sort of watched from, you know, a distance yes. to care. Well, now everybody's on a Zoom maybe call. And when the person speaks up, the littlest person or the oldest person or the person who's usually in charge, they everybody just has a little picture. And everybody gets to speak and be listened to. Yes. There, there are circles happening all over. And maybe we're moving toward that time when circle rather than hierarchy is going to come become the natural form. And in which case, women and women's natural capacity to nurture and concern for the children, concern for the animals, concern for the growing things, that maybe the pandemic, maybe this coronavirus, which means crown, (laughs) maybe this coronavirus is, first of all, going to prevent global warming from happening in the next 20 years. Yeah. I mean, it is a remarkable, remarkable time right now.
0: I have chills, Jean, as you're talking. And I, <laughs> I, I, I want to thank you. And I, because you're helping to frame this time and the opportunity that's on the table for all of us. And I was going to ask you, like, do you, do you see that we have arrived at the millionth circle? Like, are, have we hit that tipping point? No. Do you know?
1: No. no. We're on our way. We're on, our, on, the, on the way. But we're not there yet. Well, when we get there, it'll be a quiet accomplishment. It'll just be like the new norm. <laughs> That's all. Okay. So, okay. So it's not too quiet yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, you know, when when uh, women and men are are equal, the next generation of of boys will go into men who have a left and right hemisphere of equal size. You see, the current. Generation of men in power will probably learn to suppress the feminine side of the brain, which is the right side of the brain that can hold uh, opposites. It can hold that the the, the left brain is linear, logical, and it's right or wrong. Yeah. And if they did MRIs of the men in power who do not have compassion, which is seemingly the model in Washington now, I bet that the brain size on the left would be larger than the brain size on the right. Because this is true often of men who have been in power. That And women, since we've gotten educated, women have not always been educated. And, they, and this is what I was saying when I see all these women senators and members of the House. And and, and, and women doctors who are taking care of the the coronavirus victims and everything. All over the world there is women have stepped into roles that used to be only for men. And now, you know, they're men and women. And women who have been educated then have the well developed left brain, but they also have had the right brain growing up. And that the, the whole idea of humanity's individuals becoming whole people, so that you could be logical, and you, you know, you might have particular gifts that makes you a physicist, but you also have a a related side, an aesthetic side, the side that appreciates art, that can read poetry. I mean, well, you know, that's a that's what a whole brain does. And then there are those those. They call it the corpus callosum, all the fibers that join the right and left sides of the brain. Well, women have an advantage of whole brains and a larger corpus callosum, actually, and a larger tend and befriend part of their brain, while men have a larger flight or fight side, because it used to be really important that they do. Well, now it's... Not that important. The tend and befriend is much more important. So we're evolving. And I think it's going to show up also in the brains as we evolve as a species that, that learns something about compassion and non-hierarchy. Because all of the hierarchy is about superior over and then making other people inferior. Yes. And of course, they deserve less pay. Of course, they deserve an inferior position. Of course, they shouldn't have the right to make choices if they're women about whether they're going to have babies or not. I mean, really, why isn't it offensive yet that if a woman...
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is It is to you and I, but it should be to everyone, you know? Yeah. So, okay. So, so if we're not there yet, but we're, we're getting there, we're approaching there. What is it that we can do as women who are tracking what's going on in the collective, women who are educated, women who have greater and greater levels of access to power, whether that's in the form of money or position or whatever it is, voice, you know, mm-hmm. like what, what do we need to keep focusing on? Like women in my generation, for example, what do we need to keep moving this forward? What do we have to do?
1: You have to realize that you matter that that to be a member of this generation with resources and education at a time when what humanity does now will make all the difference. It it's a call really that says what you do is important, but to see it not that you have to do it way up at the top as a as a big leader or anything. For example, the model of circles and reaching the 1000000 circle, it's like you just have to do, be in a circle in which you get to learn how to speak about what's true for you, and you learn not to, to do a number of things that you learned how to do when, when you were bullied or whatever. And then as you, you grow in trust of each other, and you start to realize that each of the others are also role models for you. And you can start imagining that you could do something that you hadn't thought about doing, but actually would use your talents. And that every time your circle met, that it was contributing to the morphic field, uh, which is the field that is the human instinctual collective unconscious field. So every time you meet, you're, 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 you're looking out for each other, and you're speaking for yourself. It's an incubation circle for your own growth, but it is contributing to the field, which makes it easier and easier for others to form circles, because that's how an instinct grows. There's The whole, the Rupert Sheldrake wrote about morphic fields and morphogenesis, how a particular bird learned from watching each other's other birds tap into milk bottles that were left on the back stoops of, of English households when milk were, was delivered. And soon, the, the whole population of this particular bird started doing that in that particular area. And it was a limited area where that bird was, apparently. Well, this kind of bird used to get uh, tap, tap, tap through the what used to be a, a cardboard top and suck up the cream on top and they learned from i mean pretty soon this is what everybody needed needed to know that they had to move their milk off the back porch or a bird is going to go top 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 into it well during world war ii milk delivery stopped and the bird population's life expand you know expectancy was shorter than that whole period and they didn't have a written language but as soon as Milk deliveries were restored again. That particular bird started to do that again. Tap through the top, suck it it up. So somehow it became an instinct. See the bottle, know what to do with it. Well, that was just one of many, many examples because he was a, a theoretical biologist and he had a lot of stories about a lot of different creatures and stuff. But what I certainly got from it is that what is learned at the beginning becomes instinctual. It's what human beings do once a critical number of us do it. Yeah, so The man's circle is a metaphoric number. It's the one that tips the scales.
0: I'm so touched by what you're saying, Jean, because I feel like it really calls us as women to interconnectivity mm-hmm. and interdependence as opposed to, oh I just have to do it all on my own it's like really looking at us from that 30,000 foot view or that bird's eye view and saying we're we're like this this one large organism and if we start participating and modeling the behaviors that we want the organism to do then at some point we'll tip and it will become the new normal
1: right it will and imagination precedes doing what we do also yeah say that again you have to imagine yourself doing whatever you might be moving in the direction of doing because imagination precedes what you can do. If you are a little girl, you have to see women doing what they do in order to, to, to really be able to imagine, I could do that too. Yes. Otherwise, you, there's always been like the originals at the edge. Who, who became the pioneers, who became the first women who did this, that, or the other thing. But once you can see and imagine yourself like that woman, so when you see the diversity of women in Washington now, I would imagine all over the United States, there's a diversity of of religion and diversity of race in the women who got elected in 2018 to the house, for example, yes, as well as, as in the Senate. And so you can aspire to something if you could aspiration and imagination go together. So the expansion of your imagination and a sense of, I could do that or I want to do that. Mm -hmm. And the desire and the ability to focus because it matters to you, that's what it takes to to go on a journey of living the life that I, I would say you were meant to live because you came into this world with certain talents, with certain archetypes, and you ran into certain obstacles in your early life that either did you in or you overcame it. And then when you come up to the to adulthood, you again have, I mean, one of the things is we're pretty, there's a plasticity in our own psyche. So maybe we couldn't overcome something at one point in our life, but being in a group or going into therapy, but always with a sense of needing to trust the people who see us and what they see in us, we believe is there. Because mm. they are really seeing us, and other people growing up saw us with a stereotypical view or a family expectation, and they didn't see it. And so, it's really, really helpful to be in a women's group, for example, in which, as you, as they get to know you, and as you talk about what you aspire, they can see it. So, every woman should have. A women's support group. Yeah, because it's an archetype, also a circle with a spiritual center. that can last the rest of your lifetime. I mean, you yeah. get, you you may move from, especially now that we have Zoom and things. You can move and still meet once <laughs> once a week, once every other week online. Yeah,
0: yeah. I the way you describe that. And that's been so much my journey as a woman. I've been surrounded by a lot of women's work and women's circles um, since late adolescence, and that the the healing and the repatterning that can happen in that conscious space, and what kind of strength or just self assuredness it can give birth to in a woman is it's powerful. There's nothing quite like it.
1: That's true. You have to sometimes make it through something you didn't know you could do to find that oh <laughs> that kind of lovely surprise. Yeah. That I can do this or I did this.
0: Yeah, and and I'm no longer carrying around that dismembered identity, but yes. I but I have the remembered identity yeah, that's integrated yeah. and whole and it's it's so beautiful. And that's and I there's nothing that brings me more joy than seeing women come to that place in themselves. So I have a couple more questions before we wrap up. One is I'm just curious to know about you personally, sort of what's on the horizon and what, what has your energy and attention and focus right now in this stage of your life?
1: Well, I'm so aware that this is a, ve- a special time in history. This coronavirus the sudden full stop across the globe, the potential to start seeing each other and the world as, a glo- as global humanity and not nationalities. You know, it's, we're not there yet, but it's on the horizon that, that we could start relating to each other in a different way and stop projection, projecting and polarizing and seeing the other as enemy. I mean, differences are what human beings seem to have come into the world with. And we need to, to, to learn and value differences and learn and value who we are as well. And I think this, uh, this pandemic pause has enormous potential to, for one, uh, the, the picture of Earth from outer space now without the pollution over the major cities. I remember back when the astronauts took their first photographs of Earth from outer space. And I remember being awed. I think think we all were when we saw it for the first time. We saw the Earth from outer space, and I know my sense of, and she was beautiful. And then we saw that behind our mother, the earth, was space, space, space. This is what we had. This is what we need to value. We need, and see, I now use a metaphor of, it's like when you grow up as a a person, when you're little, you only see your mother in terms of how she's doing relative to you. I mean, that's as natural as a kid. Your mom either does right by you or wrong by you. She's either there for you or she's not there for you. You're, she's either done something good and you love her or you she, she spanked you and you're mad at her or something. But you only see her in relationship to your own self. And then as you grow older, hopefully you start to see her or she's growing older also. And you start to separate. And sometimes that separation is one of I'm not at all like her or whatever. But there's there's yourself and the other. And it's only when you are a mature woman yourself that you can look at your mother and realize back in the day when she was your mother and you were the little kid, she was, this is the first time she ever did mother before. And no, she didn't do it all that well. And then there was their divorce or something like that. And what, you know, that what happened then. And only when you are an adult can you appreciate Your mother your own mother's journey. And you can also realize at a certain point that maybe you will need to take care of her. Well, I see the planet Earth, Mother Earth, in much the same way. We have just taken advantage, we've cut down the forest, we've done all these we've polluted the air and the rivers and whatever and if we as humanity and the planet as a planet are going to survive together, we have to change what we're doing and how we're doing it. But on the other hand, reading what has come in the, from the internet in newspaper headings and things from Ireland, especially I was just so taken by two Irish images one, the streets being empty yeah. and the idea that when we went to shelter in place it was an act of love. That and that that was very moving. And then there was another uh editorial in the Irish Times that talked about about we are to the planet as a coronavirus is to humanity. That we're we're a destructive element. Yes. But The coronavirus is a destructive element, but it may need to be destructive for us to find ourselves too. And to restore the planet uh, to health again, um, it's up to us. The planet will survive, it'll change. But we won't. Yeah. (laughs) If we don't care for the home we live in and this whole symbiotic thing about, uh, I mean, I've been touched by the synchronicities of being invited to to speak about like a tree, for example, because it was a book that I wrote in 2011, and I between archetypal god goddesses and circles and things. Somehow, it was sort of a neglected child. But this is what synchronistically I'm often now asked to talk about because it's up in my sense. It's up to women and trees to be fully appreciated for the planet and humanity to survive because we breathe Mm -hmm. in the oxygen that the trees create. We breathe out the carbon dioxide and the trees sequester the carbon. And global warming is about how we have forgotten that we need to be in this kind of balance. Yes. Maybe we will learn that while we are in this
0: pandemic. I'm certainly hoping so. And I I really appreciate this call. Like it's up to the women in the trees.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So when you go out on your walk because you're keeping six feet apart instead of chattering, look at the trees. And then I was hearing from somebody about go hug them besides. <laughs> Why yes. not? I mean, there's something about we need to come into a different relationship with nature and it always has been called mother nature. Yes. And we do need to look after mother. Mm -hmm. Although mother nature herself is rather (laughs) self-sufficient.
0: Yeah, she is. And if we want to stick around as a species, (laughs) we got to partner up. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Okay. So last question, Jean, if I, handed you a microphone and you knew that all the women of the world across all different types of difference and background could hear your message. What would you want them
1: to hear? You see, I think that we each came into this world with a life to live and culture and families often make it impossible for women, to live the life they were meant to live because of their talents, because of their curiosity, because of their nurturing ability, whatever it is, can you be who you know inside you were meant to be? And will you commit yourself to that? Will you commit yourself to, this is your one great work, Magnus Opus, it is to be the living person that you we're meant to be, that you also are the person who will make the decisions that will make it possible. Something like that.
0: (laughs) Thank you so (laughs) much. Thank you for spending your time with us today, Jean. I'm honored to have been the recipient of your wisdom and your presence and I will be putting in the show notes references to all of your books that we talked about and the other ones so that people can find them. Her books are amazing, and I highly recommend them, as you can tell, from listening to Jean today. It's you're just a wealth of information and and real embodied wisdom. So thank you.
1: I thank you because you are part of the synchronicity of, which means to me, part of being part of a field in which we both are in that you were called to call me. And I was in the space of feeling that the calls that are coming have me needing to say whatever I'm meaning to say to reach whomever it is that, and I used the metaphor earlier when we talked, I think before the program started. Of, of this is like this program is like blowing a dandelion and the it it's the internet wins, take it out into the the bigger world and and synchronicity helps it to land where it was meant to land
0: absolutely and i i have so much deep faith in knowing that it will land exactly in the minds and hearts of <laughs> the people that it's meant to reach
1: it's so exactly thank the right soil mind yeah. and heart Mind and heart. Thank you very much for helping me to do my assignment. <laughs> and thank you for helping me to do mine <laughs> and for making
0: yourself available on all the different levels to, so that we can bring this conversation out and forward.
1: One short comment about what I mean by assignment. Yes, please. It's something that only you can answer The three questions. Is it meaningful to you? Will it be fun for you? And is it motivated by love? And Mm -hmm. whatever it is that you say yes to that meets those three criteria, you're right on track. This is your assignment. You were just being helped by the synchronicities. Emma, your invitation to me was part of exactly that. I've had a wonderful time just being here. <laughs> thank you. I
0: have too, and thank you for those three criteria. I feel like that's something both I and all the women listening can use. Is it meaningful? Is it fun? And is it motivated by love? Thank you.
1: You're very <laughs> welcome. Thank you,
0: Gene. Yeah. I hope you have just a wonderful remainder of this this liminal time and this shelter and place time, and all of the opportunities and insight that it's bringing to you and. I hope you stay healthy and really well resourced in the midst of it all. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Today podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and take a moment to leave a rating and a review. The more five-star ratings this podcast gets, the more easily women around the world will be able to access this valuable information. Remember, we each have our unique role to play in this collective uprising for women all over the world. Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself in this moment, there is a deep intelligence to your particular place in the wider web, and we need the specific experiences, insights, and gifts that only you carry. I am sending you my heartfelt strength and support for wherever you are on the journey. And I'll look forward to connecting again next week.